Chapter 16, Part 2 of 2 of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wyke. Section 28 Early in February, the last item of preparation for the journey to Washington had been made. Mr. Lincoln had disposed of his household goods and furniture to a neighbor, had rented his house, and as these constituted all the property he owned in Illinois, there was no further occasion for concern on that score. In the afternoon of his last day in Springfield, he came down to our office to examine some papers and confer with me about certain legal matters in which he still felt some interest. On several previous occasions he had told me he was coming over to the office to have a long talk with me, as he expressed it. We ran over the books and arranged for the completion of all unsettled and unfinished matters. In some cases he had certain requests to make certain lines of procedure he wished me to observe. After these things were all disposed of, he crossed to the opposite side of the room and threw himself down on the old office sofa, which, after many years of service, had been moved against the wall for support. He lay for some moments, his face towards the ceiling, without either of us speaking. Presently he inquired, Billy, he always called me by that name. How long have we been together? Over sixteen years, I answered. We've never had a cross word during all that time, have we? To which I returned a vehement, No, indeed, we have not. He then recalled some incidents of his early practice, and took great pleasure in delineating the ludicrous features of many a lawsuit on the circuit. It was at this last interview in Springfield that he told me of the efforts that had been made by other lawyers to supplant me in the partnership with him. He insisted that such men were weak creatures who, to use his own language, hoped to secure a law practice by hanging to his coat-tail. I never saw him in a more cheerful mood. He gathered a bundle of books and papers he wished to take with him and started to go but before leaving he made the strange request that the signboard which swung on its rusty hinges at the foot of the stairway should remain. Let it hang there undisturbed, he said, with a significant lowering of his voice. Give our clients to understand that the election of a president makes no change in the firm of Lincoln and Herndon. If I live, I am coming back some time, and then we'll go right on practicing law as if nothing had ever happened. He lingered for a moment as if to take a last look at the old quarters, and then passed to the door into the narrow hallway. I accompanied him downstairs. On the way he spoke of the unpleasant features surrounding the presidential office. I am sick of office holding already, he complained and I shudder when I think of the tasks that are still ahead. 
he said the sorrow of parting from his old associations was deeper than most persons would imagine but it was more marked in his case because of the feeling which had become irrepressible that he would never return alive i argued against the thought characterizing it as an illusory notion not in harmony or keeping with the popular ideal of a president but it is in keeping with my philosophy was his quick retort our conversation was frequently broken in upon by the interruptions of passers-by who each in succession seemed desirous of claiming his attention at length he broke away from them all grasping my hand warmly and with a fervent good-bye he disappeared down the street and never came back to the office again in answer to the many inquiries made of me i will say here that during this last interview mr lincoln for the first time brought up the subject of an office under his administration he asked me if i desired an appointment at his hands and if so what i wanted i answered that i had no desire for a federal office that i was then holding the office of bank commissioner of illinois under appointment of governor bissey and that if he would request my retention in office by yates the incoming governor i should be satisfied he made the necessary recommendation and governor yates complied i was present at the meeting between yates and lincoln and i remember that the former when lincoln urged my claims for retention in office asked lincoln to appoint their mutual friend a y ellis postmaster at springfield i do not remember whether lincoln promised to do so or not but ellis was never appointed on the morning following this last interview the eleventh day of february the presidential party repaired to the railway station where the train which was to convey them to washington awaited the ceremony of departure the intention was to stop at many of the principal cities along the route and plenty of time had been allotted for the purpose mr lincoln had told me that a man named wood had been recommended to him by mr seward and he had been placed in charge of the party as a sort of general manager the party besides the president his wife and three sons robert william and thomas consisted of his brother-in-law dr w s wallace david davis norman b judd elmer e ellsworth ward h lamon and the president's two secretaries john g nicolay and john hay colonel e v sumner and other army gentlemen were also in the car and some friends of mr lincoln among them o h browning governor yates and ex-governor moore started with the party from springfield but dropped out at points along the way. The day was a stormy one, with dense clouds hanging heavily overhead. A goodly throng of Springfield people had gathered to see the distinguished party safely off. After the latter had entered the car, the people closed about it until the President appeared on the rear platform. He stood for a moment as if to suppress evidences of his emotion, and removing his hat made the following brief but dignified and touching address friends no one who has never been placed in a like position can understand my feelings at this hour nor the oppressive sadness i feel at this parting for more than a quarter of a century i have lived among you 
and during all that time I have received nothing but kindness at your hands. Here I have lived from my youth until now I am an old man. Here the most sacred ties of earth were assumed. Here all my children were born, and here one of them lies buried. To you, dear friends, I owe all that I have, all that I am. All the strange, checkered past seems to crowd now upon my mind. Today I leave you. I go to assume a task more difficult than that which devolved upon Washington. Unless the great God who assisted him shall be with and aid me, I must fail. But if the same omniscient mind and almighty arm that directed and protected him shall guide and support me, I shall not fail. I shall succeed. Let us all pray that the God of our fathers may not forsake us now. To him I commend you all. Permit me to ask that with equal sincerity and faith you will invoke his wisdom and guidance for me. With these words I must leave you, for how long I know not. Friends, one and all, I must now bid you an affectionate farewell. I was not present when Mr. Lincoln delivered his farewell at the depot in Springfield, and never heard what he said. I have adopted the version of his speech as published in our papers. There has been some controversy over the exact language he used on that occasion, and Mr. Nicolay has recently published the speech from what he says is the original manuscript, partly in his own and partly in the handwriting of Mr. Lincoln. Substantially, however, it is like the speech as reproduced here from the Springfield paper. At the conclusion of this neat and appropriate farewell, the train rolled slowly out, and Mr. Lincoln, still standing in the doorway of the rear car, took his last view of Springfield. The journey had been as well advertised as it had been carefully planned, and therefore, at every town along the route and at every stop, great crowds were gathered to catch a glimpse of the president-elect. Mr. Lincoln usually gratified the wishes of the crowds, who called him out for a speech whether it was down on the regular program of movements or not. In all cases, his remarks were well-timed and sensibly uttered. At Indianapolis, where the legislature was in session, he halted for a day and delivered a speech the burden of which was an answer to the southern charges of coercion and invasion. From Indianapolis, he moved on to Cincinnati and Columbus, at the last-named place meeting the legislature of Ohio. The remainder of the journey convinced Mr. Lincoln of his strength in the affections of the people. Many, no doubt, were full of curiosity to see the now-famous rail-splitter, but all were outspoken and earnest in their assurances of support. At Steubenville, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Buffalo, Albany, New York, and Philadelphia, he made manly and patriotic speeches. The speeches, plain in language and simple in illustration, made every man who heard them a stronger friend than ever of the government. He was skillful enough to warn the people of the danger ahead, and to impress them with his ability to deal properly with the situation, without in any case outlining his intended policy or revealing the forces he held in reserve. Footnote, quote, before Mr. Lincoln's election in 1860, 
I, then a child of eleven years, was presented with his lithograph. Admiring him with my whole heart, I thought still his appearance would be much improved should he cultivate his whiskers. Childish thoughts must have utterance. So I proposed the idea to him, expressing as well as I was able the esteem in which he was held among honest men. A few days after, I received this kind and friendly letter. Springfield, Illinois, October 19th, 1860 Miss Grace Bedell My dear little miss, your very agreeable letter of the 15th is received. I regret the necessity of saying I have no daughter. I have three sons, one seventeen, one nine, and one seven. They with their mother constitute my whole family. As to the whiskers, as I have never worn any, do you not think that people would call it a piece of silly affectation where I were to begin wearing them now? I am your true friend and sincere well-wisher, A. Lincoln. It appears I was not forgotten, for after his election to the presidency, while on his journey to Washington, the train stopped at Westfield, Chautauqua County, at which place I then resided. Mr. Lincoln said, I have a correspondent in this place, a little girl whose name is Grace Bedell, and I would like to see her. I was conveyed to him. He stepped from the cars, extending his hand and saying, You see, I have let these whiskers grow for you, Grace kissed me, shook me cordially by the hand, and was gone. I was frequently afterward assured of his remembrance. End quote. Grace G. Bedell, Manuscript, Letter, December 14, 1866 At Pittsburgh he advised a liberation and begged the American people to keep their temper on both sides of the line. At Cleveland he insisted that the crisis as it is called, is an artificial crisis and has no foundation in fact. And at Philadelphia he assured his listeners that under his administration there would be no bloodshed unless it was forced upon the government, and then it would be compelled to act in self-defense. This last utterance was made in front of Independence Hall, where a few moments before he had unfurled to the breeze a magnificent new flag an impressive ceremony performed amid the cheers swelling from the vast sea of upturned faces before him. The following are extracts from Mr. Lincoln's letters written during the campaign in answer to his position with reference to the anticipated uprisings in the southern states. They are here published for the first time. From a letter to L. Montgomery Bond, Esquire, October 15, 1860. I certainly am in no temper and have no purpose to embitter the feelings of the South. But whether I am inclined to such a course as would, in fact, embitter their feelings, you can better judge by my published speeches than by anything I would say in a short letter if I were inclined now, as I am not, to define my position anew. From a letter to Samuel Haycraft, dated Springfield, Illinois, June 4, 1860. Like yourself, I belonged to the old Whig Party from its origin to its close. I never belonged to the American Party organization, nor ever to a party called a Union Party, though I hope I neither am nor ever have been less devoted to the Union than yourself 
or any other patriotic man. Private and Confidential, Springfield, Illinois, November 13, 1860, Honorable Samuel Haycraft. My dear sir, yours of the ninth is just received. I can only answer briefly. Rest fully assured that the good people of the South who will put themselves in the same temper and mood towards me, which you do, will find no cause to complain of me. Yours very truly, A. Lincoln. From Philadelphia, his journey took him to Harrisburg, where he visited both branches of the legislature then in session. For an account of the remainder of this now famous trip, I beg to quote from the admirable narrative of Dr. Holland. Describing the welcome tendered him by the legislature at Harrisburg, the letter says, At the conclusion of the exercises of the day, Mr. Lincoln, who was known to be very weary, was permitted to pass undisturbed to his apartments in the Jones House. It was popularly understood that he was to start for Washington the next morning, and the people of Harrisburg supposed they had only taken a temporary leave of him. He remained in his rooms until nearly six o'clock, when he passed into the street, entered a carriage unobserved in company with Colonel Lamon, and was driven to a special train on the Pennsylvania Railroad in waiting for him. As a matter of precaution, the telegraph wires were cut the moment he left Harrisburg, so that if his departure should be discovered, intelligence of it could not be communicated at a distance. At half-past ten the train arrived at Philadelphia, and here Mr. Lincoln was met by a detective, who had a carriage in readiness in which the party were driven to the depot of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad. At a quarter-past eleven they arrived, and very fortunately found the regular train, which should have left at eleven, delayed. The party took berths in the sleeping car and without change of cars passed directly through Baltimore to Washington, where Mr. Lincoln arrived at half-past six o'clock in the morning and found Mr. Washburn anxiously awaiting him. He was taken into a carriage, and in a few minutes he was talking over his adventures with Senator Seward at Willard's Hotel. The remaining members of the presidential party from whom Mr. Lincoln separated at Harrisburg left that place on the special train intended for him, and as news of his safe arrival in Washington had been already telegraphed over the country, no attempt was made to interrupt their safe passage through Baltimore. As is now generally well known, many threats had up to that time been made that Mr. Lincoln, on his way to Washington, should never pass through Baltimore alive. It was reported and believed that conspiracies had been formed to attack the train, blow it up with explosives, or in some equally effective way dispose of the president-elect. Mr. Seward and others were so deeply impressed with the grave features of the reports afloat that Alan Pinkerton, the noted detective of Chicago, was employed to investigate the matter and ferret out the conspiracy, if any existed. This shrewd operator went to Baltimore, opened an office as a stockbroker, and through his assistance, the most adroit and serviceable of whom was a woman, was soon in possession of inside information. The change of plans and trains at Harrisburg was due to his management and advice. 
some years before his death mr pinkerton furnished me with a large volume of the written reports of his subordinates and an elaborate account by himself of the conspiracy and the means he employed to ferret it out the narrative thrilling enough in some particulars is too extended for insertion here it is enough for us to know that the tragedy was successfully averted and that mr lincoln was safely landed in washington in january preceding his departure from springfield mr lincoln becoming somewhat annoyed not to say alarmed at the threats emanating from baltimore and other portions of the country adjacent to washington that he should not reach the latter place alive and that even if successful in reaching the capital his inauguration should in some way be prevented determined to ascertain for himself what protection should be given him in case an effort should be made by an individual or a mob to do him violence he sent a young military officer in the person of thomas mather then adjutant-general of illinois to washington with a letter to general scott in which he recounted the threats he had heard and ventured to inquire as to the probability of any attempt at his life being made on the occasion of his inauguration general mather on his arrival in washington found general scott confined to his room by illness and unable to see visitors on mather calling a second time and sending in his letter he was invited up to the sick man's chamber entering the room related mather in later years i found the old warrior grisly and wrinkled propped up in the bed by an embankment of pillows behind his back his hair and beard were considerably disordered the flesh seemed to lay in rolls across his warty face and neck, and his breathing was not without great labor. In his hand he still held Lincoln's letter. He was weak from long-continued illness, and trembled very perceptibly. It was evident that the message from Lincoln had wrought up the old veteran's feelings. General Mather, he said to me in great agitation, present my compliments to mr lincoln when you return to springfield and tell him i expect him to come on to washington as soon as he is ready say to him that i'll look after those maryland and virginia rangers myself i'll plant cannon at both ends of pennsylvania avenue and if any of them show their heads or raise a finger i'll blow them to hell on my return to springfield concludes mather I hasten to assure Mr. Lincoln that, if Scott were alive on the day of the inauguration, there need be no alarm lest the performance be interrupted by any one. I felt certain the hero of Lundy's Lane would give the matter the care and attention it deserved. Having at last reached his destination in safety, Mr. Lincoln spent the few days preceding his inauguration at Willard's Hotel, receiving an uninterrupted stream of visitors and friends. In the few unoccupied moments allotted him, he was carefully revising his inaugural address. On the morning of the 4th of March, he rode from his hotel with Mr. Buchanan in an open barouche to the Capitol. There, slightly pale and nervous, he was introduced to the assembled multitude by his old friend Edward D. Baker, in a fervid and impressive manner delivered his address at its conclusion the customary oath was administered by the venerable chief justice taney 
and he was now clothed with all the powers and privileges of chief magistrate of the nation. He accompanied Mr. Buchanan to the White House, and here the historic bachelor of Lancaster bade him farewell, bespeaking for him a peaceful, prosperous, and successful administration. One who witnessed the impressive scene left the following graphic description of the inauguration and its principal incidents. Near noon I found myself a member of the motley crowd gathered about the side entrance to Willard's Hotel. Soon an open barouche drove up, and the only occupant stepped out, a large, heavy, awkward-moving man, far advanced in years, short and thin gray hair, full face plentifully seamed and wrinkled, head curiously inclined to the left shoulder, a low-crowned, broad-brimmed silk hat, an immense white cravat like a poultice, thrusting the old-fashioned standing collar up to the ears, dressed in black throughout, with swallowtail coat, not of the newest style. It was President Buchanan, calling to take his successor to the capital. In a few minutes he reappeared with Mr. Lincoln on his arm. The two took seats side by side, and the carriage rolled away, followed by a rather disorderly and certainly not very imposing procession. I had ample time to walk to the capital, and no difficulty in securing a place where everything could be seen and heard to the best advantage. The attendance at the inauguration was, they told me, unusually small, many being kept away by anticipated disturbance, as it had been rumored, truly, too, that General Scott himself was fearful of an outbreak and had made all possible military preparations to meet the emergency. A square platform had been built out from the steps to the eastern portico, with benches for distinguished spectators on three sides. Douglas, the only one I recognized, sat at the extreme end of the seat on the right of the narrow passage, leading from the steps. There was no delay, and the gaunt form of the president-elect was soon visible, slowly making his way to the front. To me, at least, he was completely metamorphosed, partly by his own fault and partly through the efforts of injudicious friends and ambitious tailors. He was raising, to gratify a very young lady, it is said, a crop of whiskers of the blacking-brush variety, coarse, stiff, and ungraceful, and in so doing spoiled, or at least seriously impaired, a face which, though never handsome, had in its original state a peculiar power and pathos. On the present occasion the whiskers were reinforced by brand new clothes from top to toe, black dress coat instead of the usual frock, black cloth or satin vest, black pantaloons, and a glossy hat evidently just out of the box. To cap the climax of novelty, he carried a huge ebony cane, with a gold head the size of an egg. In these, to him, strange habiliments, he looked so miserably uncomfortable that I could not help pitying him. Reaching the platform, his discomfort was visibly increased by not knowing what to do with hat and cane, and so he stood there, 
the target for ten thousand eyes, holding cane in one hand and hat in the other, the very picture of helpless embarrassment. After some hesitation, he pushed the cane into a corner of the railing, but could not find a place for the hat except on the floor, where I could see he did not like to risk it. Douglas, who fully took in the situation, came to rescue of his old friend and rival, and held the precious hat until the owner needed it again, a service which, if predicted two years before, would probably have astonished him. The oath of office was administered by Chief Justice Taney, whose black robes, attenuated figure, and cadaverous countenance reminded me of a galvanized corpse. Then the President came forward and read his inaugural address in a clear and distinct voice. It was attentively listened to by all, but the closest listener was Douglas, who leaned forward as if to catch every word, nodding his head emphatically at those passages which most pleased him. There was some applause, not very much, nor very enthusiastic. I must not forget to mention the presence of a Mistopheles in the person of Senator Wigfall of Texas, who stood with folded arms leaning against the doorway of the Capitol, looking down upon the crowd and the ceremony with a contemptuous air, which sufficiently indicated his opinion of the whole performance. To him, the Southern Confederacy was already an accomplished fact. He lived to see it the saddest of fictions. End of section 28 Recording by Bill Mosley, Bernardo, Texas, USA